Good morning. Our scripture is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and is found on page 1,161 in the Bibles and the seats in front of you. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long for all, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Today we begin a new sermon series. And we are, for the next several months, going to go through a book in the New Testament called Philippians. It's going to be, a, a an, I think, an interesting study. We're going to try to do it somewhat slowly and deliberately because there's so much in, the, in Philippians that we will benefit from. You might ask me the question, Mike, why did you choose Philippians? Why, out of 66 books of the Bible, why did you pick that one? And my reasoning is twofold. I want to take you back to what I said at the beginning of this calendar year. I said, I really believe in my life and in yours and us in this church, our biggest need is to know God better. And one of the things that Paul talks about in the book of Philippians is knowing God better. He says, I want in chapter three, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And so I believe that as we walk through Philippians together, we're going to join Paul in this odyssey of learning more about Jesus and knowing God better and more personally. But there's a second reason that I chose Philippians, because I believe that in my life and in yours and us as a church, there's not only the need to know God better, I believe we need to know to uh, make Christ known better. I believe we need to grow more evangelistic in our life. I certainly do. I believe many of you do as well. And Paul in the book of Philippians says not only that he wants to know Christ, but he wants to make him known. He says in chapter 2 that we are to shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of truth to people. And so Paul's desire in his own life as well as in the lives of the Philippians was that they grow more effective and more consistent and faithful in sharing their faith with other people. I know I need to grow in that way. Do you? And as we look at Philippians, I believe that God's grace giving us uh, help, I believe we will grow more faithful and more, more desirous and more faithful and consistent in sharing our faith with other people. So those are my two reasons for choosing the book of Philippians, and I'm excited about it. Now, as we dive into Philippians, I think it's important that I give you a brief overview of the book. You can, granted, you can go online, you can read commentaries, and you can do that on your own. But let me just take a few moments here at the beginning to give you a little overview of the whole book of Philippians. Who was its author? The author was the Apostle Paul. 
Timothy is also mentioned in verse 1, but he didn't write the book. Paul did. Paul, we're confident that Paul was his author. Where was Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? And that's a simple question with a simple answer also. He was in Rome. Now, Paul's desire for many years was to visit Rome. After all, Rome was the cultural and political center of the empire. Paul wanted to go there because if the gospel could take root in Rome, why, it would explode everywhere, right? And so he wanted to, that was his dream. Well, guess what? His dream came true. It just didn't come true in the way he thought it might. Paul is in Rome, but he's not there strictly as a preacher. He's there as a prisoner. If you read through the book of Acts, in the latter part of the book of Acts, you find out what happened. Paul had gotten arrested uh, some months prior to that, that when he was in Jerusalem. He was arrested on some trumped-up charges. He was tried before the Roman governor. He was accused by the Jewish religious establishment of the day. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar, and he was transferred to Rome to await trial. Now, he was in prison, I said. Um, He was in prison. It says in verse 7 that he was in chains. So he's in prison. But that doesn't mean he was in a prison like you and I think of as a prison. It wasn't a dungeon. It wasn't a room with bars on the window. It was house arrest. It was house arrest. He was there for about two years. You can read Acts chapter 28 to find out a little bit more about that. Um, Now, this didn't mean that he had no visitors at all. He actually had visitors. People could come and spend time with Paul and get to know him. He could minister to people that way. But here's the thing. Paul had no privacy. Paul had no comforts of home. When it says in verse 7 that he was in chains, he's not kidding. He was chained to a guard, a Roman guard. And scholars believe he was chained to this guard 24 hours a day. Not to the same guard, but to a guard. And so those were some of the hardships that Paul experienced. On the other hand, fortunately, because people could come and see him, he was visited by some of his friends, such as Timothy, such as a man that I'm going to introduce to you in just a few moments, Epaphroditus. But the other thing that was good about Paul's years in prison, two years or so, is that he was able to write letters. Presumably he wrote a lot of letters, but we have four of them in our New Testaments. They are called the prison epistles or the prison letters. And besides Philippians, the other three were Ephesians, Colossians, and the little book called Philemon. And all of these books are precious jewels of Christian truth. Thankfully, Paul wrote them in this prison setting so we can be grateful to God for that. The date, 60 to 62 A.D., give or take. Ten years or so before he wrote the book of Philippians, Paul planted a church in the city of Philippi. Philippi, what's that? It was a Roman colony. It's located in Macedonia. The Philippians were citizens of Rome, and they took great pride in that. They were actually exempt from taxation. It's getting close to April 15th. We can appreciate what it must have meant to them to be exempt from being taxed as citizens of Rome. Philippi was a very prosperous city. It's called in Acts chapter 16, a leading city of that district. Um, It's also a very proud city. In the history of Philippi were names like Octavius and Mark Antony and Brutus and people 
that you have heard about in the history books. Well, Paul stopped in Philippi on his second missionary journey. Here's a map. If you can see it from your seat, the second of Paul's three missionary journeys is in purple. It's up at the top. It's the northernmost route. What he did was he left Antioch over there at the far right, and you see he went through what's now Turkey. And then when you get all the way up to the top left corner, that's the country of Macedonia, and the topmost city there on that map is called Philippi in Macedonia. If you read chapter uh, 16 of the book of Acts, it'll tell you what happened in Philippi. And it was really quite dramatic. There were a couple of dramatic conversions in Philippi. A woman named Lydia became a Christian and her household was baptized and made a big impact on the city. And also after Paul was arrested, there was big earthquake and he was freed by God. And uh, uh, the Philippian jailer said, you know, what must I do to be saved? And he was converted to Christ. His family was baptized as well. Paul got in trouble. He was nearly killed. He had to be uh, helped out of the city to find safety. I mean, it's an exciting episode, exciting chapter in the life of the Apostle Paul. Read about it in Acts chapter 16. Basically, bottom line is the city of Philippi was turned upside down by the gospel. And these people, after Paul planted the church there, they fell in love with Paul. This was some of Paul's favorite people. I mean, they loved Paul. Paul loved them. And as we read through the book of Philippians, you're going to find out that it's a very warm-hearted letter. Paul loves these people, and they love him too. They loved him so much, they wanted to make sure he was doing okay in prison. They sent him care packages, not just once or twice, but several times. He talks about that in chapter 4. And not only did they send him care packages, including some money, they sent him a person. They sent him a person whom scholars believe might have been, been their pastor. His name was Epaphroditus. Try saying that several times in a row. Epaphroditus. They sent Epaphroditus to Paul to check on Paul, make sure he was okay. And Paul wrote the letter of Philippians back to the Philippians for several reasons. One, to thank them for their care for him. Two, to make sure they knew he was okay. And three, he wanted to also tell them, hey, I'm concerned about you too. I'm hearing some things that aren't all positive, and you'll find out what those things are in a little while. So, now if I were writing this letter, here I am in prison, and I'm writing some people that I know care deeply about me, I know what I would probably do. I would complain about the food. I would tell them this is not a great place to be. I would complain about the fact that I've been unjustly arrested and that's why I was here. I don't belong here. I would also ask them to do something to get me out. None of those things you find in the letter to the Philippians. Instead, it's a very positive, upbeat, joyful letter. Some people would even say joy is the theme of the book of Philippians and I think rightly so. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 and you'll see a little taste of what I mean. Verse 3 of Chapter 1 says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I want to talk with you this morning about prayer. That's our subject. And I'd like to tell you three things about prayer. First, simply to establish the fact that Paul prayed. Secondly, how he prayed. And third, why Paul prayed. The goal being that you and I, as men and women and children, 
who follow after Christ would become people more committed to prayer. Okay? So let's begin with that first point. I just want you to notice with me that Paul prayed. And it's pretty remarkable given his circumstances. Paul was a man of prayer. See, he couldn't do much. He was in prison, but he could pray. His hands were literally tied, you might say. But Paul knew that God's hands were not tied. Paul was limited in what he could do because of his circumstances, but he knew that God is never limited for his circumstances. Therefore, Paul prayed. What did Paul know? Paul knew something that maybe you've heard before. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And that would be a real great takeaway for us today. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Paul was in Rome, which is 800 miles or so away from Philippi. But it could have been, it might as well have been 8 million miles away from Philippi. It doesn't matter where you are. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And if you read Paul's other prison letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, you know that he starts those three letters off the same, virtually the same way he starts Philippians, with prayer, acknowledging the importance of prayer. So I just want to mention that to get it off square one. Paul prayed. But now let's go on to the second thing. How did he pray? How did Paul pray? Three ways. He prayed frequently, intelligently, and confidently. Let's break that apart and see what I mean. First of all, Paul prayed frequently. He didn't just pray for the Philippians once or twice. He kept it up. Notice in verse 1 he says, I thank my God Every time I remember you, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. See, friends, if there's one thing that is true about prayer is that it must be persistent. I mean, if you want to become a person of prayer, you can't be discouraged after praying once or twice about something and it not happening. Jesus taught us the importance of persevering in prayer. For example, he taught us in Luke chapter 18 about a a persistent widow who had an unjust situation. And the story was about how she went after this unjust judge over and over and over again until she received what she desired. Jesus also um, talked to us about in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember where he says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. Well, actually, those verbs are all present tense verbs. Keep asking and you will receive. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking. Don't just ask once. Don't just knock once. But keep knocking and the door will be open to you, said Jesus. See, sometimes I feel that God wants to know that what you're asking for is something that you really desire. We do that with our own children sometimes, right? God really wants to see if what you're telling him in prayer is really all that important to you. I'm convicted about the fact that many times what I pray about is really kind of peripheral. And that's why I so easily stop praying about it. Paul was different. Paul prayed frequently. I know a person who lives here in Orlando who had at one time a father who was not a Christian. And this guy was so concerned about his dad that what he did was he decided I'm going to pray for my dad every night before I go to bed. So what he did was he wrote his prayer for his father out on a card and put it on his bedside table. 
so that every night before he switched off his light, he would just simply pick the card up and read it and pray for his dad. He did that for years. I'm not exaggerating. His father came to know Christ. But if the man had, uh, had been discouraged, he might not have kept praying, you know. God definitely would have still brought his dad to, to himself. But this man I know wouldn't have had the pleasure of investing those hours and those days in laboring in prayer for his father. So let's take heart and pray frequently. Secondly, Paul not only prayed frequently, but he prayed intelligently. And I want to dwell on this because it's so important to pray intelligently. Notice in verses 9 through 11 the content of Paul's prayer. He says in verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love, O you Philippians, may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. You might want to underline some of these key words. Knowledge, depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. Now that's packed, packed, packed. And several sermons probably are in that those two or three verses. But what I want you to just notice is that this is an informed prayer. It's It's a specific prayer. It's a thoughtful prayer. Paul doesn't just say, Lord, bless those Philippians, like I do many times. Lord, just bless John, bless Mary. No, Paul went further because he knew what the Philippians specifically needed. You're going to find out later as we do this study of Philippians that some of the Philippians were struggling to love other people in the church. There was some disunity in the church in Philippi. And so what does Paul pray? Paul prays there in verse 9 for love, for agape love. Let them be filled with love, people of knowledge, or rather of love, that it may abound more and more. And secondly, Paul knew that these believers in Philippi were being exposed to false teaching. And you'll find out more about that over in chapter 3. So what does Paul pray for? He prays for knowledge. It's the Greek word epignosis. We met that word a couple of weeks ago. It means knowledge, not just of facts, but of experiential knowledge, intimate knowledge. Paul prays for that in in light of the false teaching that they're getting. Also, he prays for discernment. You see that phrase there? He prays that they will have knowledge and discernment. That's an interesting word. It's the Greek word aesthesis. Aesthesis. You can hear aesthetics. Some of you have a particular eye for beauty, for art, right? This is where we get the word aesthetic from. Paul is praying that these people will have an aesthetic taste for the beautiful, for telling the difference between the good and the bad, between right and wrong, between good and evil, between better and best. So it's an intelligent prayer because he sees that that is one of the specific needs they had. Thirdly, another example, the Philippians were suffering persecution because of what you read about in the book of Acts. And so Paul, instead of, uh, instead of letting them become angry and vengeful and bitter people, Paul prays, God, make them to become people with sincere hearts. That's what the word pure means there in that verse. Let them become people of holy behavior because they're living in a hostile culture. So do you see that you get my point, right? That Paul is praying an intelligent prayer, not just this vague general thing that that doesn't really reflect any thought. My point here is that prayers don't have to be long. Don't get hung up with, 
oh, God, I'm not a good prayer. I, I don't pray very eloquently. You know, that's not the point. Prayers don't have to be long or eloquent, but they do need to be intelligent. They need to show that you think about what you're asking for. Not only because, well, God already knows, but it's important for you to know what you're asking for. And if you don't know what to pray for specifically, just get, let God know the specific need. He'll figure it out. He's God. He'll figure out what to do, but lift the need up concretely to him. Okay, so first we saw that Paul prays frequently. He plays, prays intelligently. And thirdly, I want you to notice that he prays confidently. Paul prays for the Philippians confidently. In verse 6, he says, I am confident of this, <clears throat> that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I was painting the other day. We moved my mother-in-law, Susie's mom, out of her apartment into a an independent living situation. And before we could totally move and give the key back to the apartment complex, I had to go in and repaint the apartment. We had put some color in there, of all things, and now they said, you got to paint it apartment white again. So I had to go in there and paint her apartment apartment white. I only have one day to do it. I had to be finished by a certain time that evening. Well, you can imagine my consternation when shortly after I had started repainting her apartment, I got down off my ladder, and without looking at where I was stepping, my foot went right on top of the paint can, and over it went right on her carpet. I didn't have a, I didn't have a, uh, a cloth there. About half of, yeah, you felt my pain. About half of the paint can went all over the carpet. Now I'm worried not only about having to pay some penalty, but also... This is going to take me hours to clean this up. I've got to finish this job before, you know, before the end of the day. Well, it was, it was terrible. There were no, we had cleaned the place out. There were no paper towels. There were no towels. I just scrambled. I finally figured it out. I got the paint up uh, all as well. I finished the job because I was determined to finish what I began. I use that story to say God is determined no matter how messy it gets no matter how messed up is your life or whatever it is you're facing, God is determined to finish what he's begun. That's your confidence in prayer, not only for yourself, but for your loved ones for whom you're praying. God, you can take this mess and clean it up. I rest it in your hands. So Paul prayed confidently. What situation are you thinking about? I mean, I've been preaching now about prayer. I suspect that if you're a Christian, you've been thinking, okay, this applies to my prayer life. And I'm concerned about my kid, my parent, my friend. I'm concerned about this country we prayed about earlier. You've got concerns. I hope that you'll take these things as a takeaway today to remember that prayer moves the hand that moves the world, that you will think and pray frequently and confidently and intelligently about those things. But I want to move on to my third and last point. Why did Paul pray? This is perhaps the most important thing I want to say today. It's important to become a person of prayer. It's important to pray frequently, persistently, and with the, these other principles that I've talked about. But I want you to see why Paul prayed and let this become a motive that might just dramatically change your life. It wasn't because Paul felt 
that it was merely his duty to pray. It wasn't just because Paul thought it was the Christian thing to do to pray for the Philippians. It wasn't because Paul was an apostle and felt responsible to pray for the Philippians. And get this, it wasn't even because Paul saw utilitarian value in prayer and knew that it would work. Those were not the primary motivations behind Paul's prayers for the Philippians. Now, when I think about myself, if you were to ask me, Mike, why do you pray for so-and-so or such-and-such? I got to be honest with you. Many times it it is, it is out of duty. It is out of a sense of discipline. I, I know it's good for me to be, to pray. I know that I need to pray. I know I should pray. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to pray. And so I do. But guys, if that is as far as it gets for you, and and if that's as far as it goes for me, there's something huge in Philippians 1 here that we are missing. Because Paul's motive in prayer was not those things that I listed. Look at verse 7, and I think you'll pick it up. In verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Hmm. And look at verse 8. He goes on to say that God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why did Paul pray for the Philippians? Because he deeply, deeply loved them. I titled my sermon today, Loving People on Your Knees for a Reason. Prayer is a way to love. Love ought to be our main motivation for praying for people. He says, Paul says, I have you in my heart, not just on my prayer list. Now look, there's nothing wrong with a prayer list. But if you list those things, ask God to take them from your list and put them on your heart. He says, I long for you. That word long speaks of a yearning a deep desire, an intense craving, tantamount to being homesick. That's how Paul feels about the Philippian people. And he says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, that word affection, friends, is so very vital when we're talking about prayer. It's not just the word love. It's a specific word that's translated as affection here. It's the Greek word splanchnon. And it's an interesting word. I I tell you these things because I think it'll deepen your understanding of the Bible. This Greek word is very special. It actually means bowels. Or you can even hear the word spleen, right? Splanchnon is probably the word from which we get the word spleen. And so Paul is saying... I feel something in my inmost parts about you people. I I am stirred with a deep-seated emotion. It affects me. It changes me. I, 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 I love you not for what you can do for me, but for what God can do in you. That's what affection is all about. It, it's in the Bible in other places, some key places that you know about. It's used in the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story, the, the fellow comes back home and it says that when he was a far piece off, far way off, 
the father ran to him because his heart was moved with what? Compassion. Splanknon. Affection. His bowels, his inmost parts were stirred with affection for his son. It's in the story of the good Samaritan. Here comes the Samaritan. He sees the man beaten up, lying by the side of the road. He was moved with compassion. Sometimes it's translated as pity, but we have negative connotations about pity, don't we? Sometimes it's translated sympathy, but just don't forget it is this deep emotion and and it affects the whole body. It affects the mind and the heart and the will and everything else. And several times in the New Testament, it's used of Jesus. When he saw the crowds on on the hillside, he was moved with compassion for them because why? They were like sheep without a shepherd. So what is Paul saying? Back to our text. Paul is saying that he, not just that he misses the Philippians, although he does, He's not just saying that he feels emotionally connected to the Philippians like they're his friends, even though that's true. See, you, you get the point, right? Our culture has totally screwed up the meaning of the word love. What most people mean when they talk about love, what most people mean when they say, I love you, is that I need you in my life or you compliment me or there are things about you that I like. You know, we're talking about romantic love. But it's not truly biblical love. It's not true agape love. I love you to most people in our culture means you make me happy. You complete me. You have things in you that I want and that I need. Now, it's that's fine as far as it goes to be attracted to someone like that. That's usually where... Love begins and has to begin. Those of you who are married, that's probably where it started, right? If you're dating, it starts with attraction. But if that's as far as it goes, that's not love, not biblical love. It's not agape. Paul is saying, your well-being matters more to me than my own. Here's the main point I'm driving at. You will know when love has begun, when you're unhappy, unless someone else flourishes. You're unhappy unless someone someone else flourishes. That's where love is. That's where love begins. I heard someone say it that way, and I've never forgotten that. Love is you're unhappy unless that other person is flourishing. It's when their hurts keep you awake at night. It's when you get a stomach ache, literally, because of somebody else's problem. It's when their health, their healing, their experiencing of God's love means more to you than your health, your healing, and your experiencing of God's love. That's affection. That's love. And when you look at love that way, if you're like me, you probably see how few people you really love. I got to admit, it's pretty rare for me. To really be unhappy, sleepless at night, unless someone else I know is flourishing. But I've got good news for you. You need the grace of God. God's got grace for you. Because in verse 8, it says that this is the affection of Christ Jesus. It's the affection of Christ that Paul is simply passing on. Guess what? God really really loves you. He really, really loves you. 
How do I know? Because he went to the cross for you. Jesus Christ went to the cross bearing the wrath of the Father because he was unhappy unless you are flourishing. Jesus bore your sin upon his own body and endured the separation from God because your health, your healing, your experiencing of God's love meant more to him on the cross than his own. He was separated from God so that you would not be. That's affection. That's love. And Jesus gave that to you. That you might begin to experience it and have your life changed by it and be transformed from the inside out so that you can begin to give it away to other people. Jesus had you in his heart. He longed for you. He was captivated by you. And he longs for you still. He can't wait till you're in heaven so that you and he can be together forever. That's what he thinks about you. That's what he feels about you. If you're his child, if you've turned away from sin and received Christ by faith, that's how he feels about you. Always. So do you see then that prayer is a way of loving people? Loving people on your knees. I hope that today you and I together at UPC will begin to see that prayer is a way of dying to self and allowing our prayers to be the means by which God can bless other people, asking God to work in someone else, to make them what they need to be. And until that happens, we're going to pray and we're going to be unhappy because of our affection for them in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you endured what you endured so that we might be made whole. Thank you that you came into this world with a longing for your chosen people. You came to set us free from sin so that we might be your jars of clay through which you can pour out your love, your affection to other people. Father, I got to admit to you that my prayers reflect the fact that I'm pretty self-centered. And I suspect that I pray for many when I say that I need you to do a deep work in us that you will change us from self-centered people to people who are affectionate, who are actually unhappy until the people we care about are flourishing. Lord, I suspect that there are parents just like me who are worried about kids, who think about kids who are far away. There are people who whose marriages are not what they should be. There are Parents who are, I mean, there are kids who are concerned for parents, uh, friends for friends. We are concerned for other nations of the world. Father, would you allow us to begin seeing prayer as a means of struggling and suffering until we see you flourish other people? Father, we just need you to do that for us because you've done it for us. You did it on the cross. And for that, we're grateful. Lord, we bring an offering to you this morning. And pray that you will use these offerings to change us as well as to change the rest of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.